0: Part of a new Church of Christ in Denison, Texas. Todd received his Bible degree from LCU and a graduate degree from Harding Graduate School of Religion. He's been preaching at Denison since 1994. He's married to Henry Ann, and they have four beautiful children and two grandchildren, which he is quite opinionated about. (laughs) Welcome, Todd. Come and speak to us. You can have my cat for free if you're <laughs> looking for another one. Glad to be with you tonight. Uh, Doug called, I don't know, a couple of months ago, a few months ago, like before summer started, and, and said, I'd um, like for you to come up and, and, and speak to us. It's uh, summer shorts. And I thought, well, that's kind of an odd topic. And at first, I'm thinking maybe he's inviting short preachers. Uh, to uh, to speak this summer, and I, you know, a little offended by it, but hey, I'll take any gig I can, right? Then he started to explain. You know, it's a short stories. It's it's a series on the parables of Jesus, and of and of course, that's not true. I didn't I didn't think it was a series of short preachers, but but uh, it, it is good. That's it's good. <laughs> you have to charge you for that one, right? <laughs> but uh, my name is Todd, and and, and I am short. <laughs> I've been short a long time, Uh, usually that's a disadvantage being short but at least one time in my life it worked out to be an advantage when I graduated high school. We had the guys line up and go onto the football field and we had the girls line up and go onto the football field and then we'd all take our seats for the graduation and, and so we marched in by order of height shortest to tallest. And so on that Saturday early evening in Methuen, Massachusetts, I was the shortest one in my graduation class, and so I got to march everyone into the field. All those big tall guys were way in the back, and I finally got the recognition uh, that I deserved. (laughs) Finally paid off. Finally paid off. Matthew chapter 13 is is the parable that we're in uh, this evening. Matthew chapter 13, there's several uh, parables that Jesus tells, there's a, uh, a little clump of parables. Most of these are, are referred to as kingdom parables. Many of these begin with that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, and then Jesus tells a short story to illustrate some, uh, some aspect, or even, even He talks about these parables give us some, some special insight, he even talks about He's revealing secrets through these, through these parables. And in these parables about the kingdom of God, I think Jesus wants us to have a a proper understanding of how the kingdom is working uh, here uh, on earth, to have the right expectations about being a member of the kingdom, how it's going to uh, operate and how it's going to demonstrate itself uh, in this world. It's real important to have proper expectations before you make any type of commitment. On occasion, I do premarital counseling, and one of the lessons that I have for the... Husband and the wife is. Uh, let's go over expectations. What do you expect uh, coming into marriage as, as, a, as a wife and for the husband? What do you expect? We're kind of getting to just the nitty gritty. Who's going to do the dishes? Who's going to take care of the lawn? Who's going to take care of this? Who's going to take care of that? Because when we have proper expectations and that's going to minimize conflict and and problems and and even just to have the expectation to recognize that marriage isn't just going to be this, this fairy tale and we all know that, all of us who have been married more than two or three hours, I guess, right? (laughs) I figured that out, you know. Some people go into that, into marriage, thinking it's going to be the answer to all my problems, and it's just going to be, it's going to be just one beautiful, perfect, romantic day after another. And so, uh, of course, with my marriage, for anyone who knows my wife, you can say, exactly, that's how it has been uh, with us. But, uh, But to have those proper expectations, that marriage is a lot of a lot of work. And so that's one thing that I, I work with uh, couples before they get married. I remember when we had our first child, they still have the book, What to Expect While You're Expecting? Is that still, that was a big book when we first had our children, and, and uh, it let the mother know, you know, what's going on, what's happening to my body, how big is the child, what should be happening, and, uh, and again, to have those proper expectations uh, relieves the mother of a lot of anxiety, as long as they know what is supposed to happen. And so, Jesus, in these parables in Matthew chapter 13, he wants us to understand what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. That word kingdom can be confusing, can't it? I mean, when you think of the word kingdom, you might think of something like this, this this castle all guarded and all secure, where all the good people are in the castle, and all the bad people are out, and no evil is going to get in. It's surrounded by a moat, and, and it's, just, it's just beautiful. you got this perfect king, and everything is just, everything's just like a fairy tale. Or, or maybe you have an image of this when you think of the word kingdom, the magic kingdom where where everything is just perfect, everything is great. Everything's real expensive, but you get your credit card to make sure that you can pay for everything. And so, so even in, in, the kingdom is not a word that we use really often uh, in our day and age, but we understand the concept. And that, that concept was, was a uh, common concept among the first century uh, Jews that Jesus was talking to. And uh, a lot of times that word, that, that concept of kingdom can give some misconceptions of what Jesus was establishing and what to expect and what is going going to happen. And the kingdom has been a a theme of Jesus' message. I've come to to proclaim the kingdom of God. John the Baptist talked about that. Um, And so in these kingdom parables, Jesus is trying to help us understand what does it mean to be part of this kingdom? What is this kingdom uh, about? Earlier in chapter 13... There was a parable that Jesus uh, uh, spoke, the sower and the seed. I don't think that was on your list of your parables this summer. But, uh, but that's a parable about how a sower goes to seed, uh, uh, sow seed. And some of the seed takes, some of the seed doesn't take. There's these birds that are coming down. And there's, there's hard soils, there's thorns and thistles. And for a lot of people, they would think the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven, when it arrives here on earth, everyone's going to love it. Everyone's going to accept it. I mean, this message, this gospel message is just so, so pure and beautiful and powerful. Who would say no to that type of kingdom? But one of the messages of that kingdom parable is that, you know, as we go out and spread that word, it's not going to take uh, every time. After the parable that we're going to look at tonight, there's a, another parable, or two parables, uh, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of yeast. Now, those are two things that you usually don't associate with the coming of a kingdom. I mean, those are small things. Those work very slowly. And when you think of kingdom, you think of of knights in shining armor, you think of armies coming in, you think of all of the enemies being vanquished, and you think of everything just being the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus says, we may need to rethink that. And so he tells uh, these parables. So Matthew chapter 13. Let me read you the parable of the weeds in verses 24 uh, through 29. Matthew 13, 24 through 29. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, First, collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. All right, just a couple of insights into this parable. And it's a familiar parable. You have probably heard some of these details. but uh, And I'm not a farmer. I don't sow seed. I don't grow things. I mean, I can grow weeds. But I'm not, I'm not much of a, uh, a farmer at all. But I, 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 I'm told that this wheat and this, these weeds look remarkably similar as they're growing up eventually near the harvest time then there's a way that you can distinguish the two and it's never good to have these weeds uh, in a garden the the weeds of course will take some of the nutrients from the ground take some of the water and uh, and just just prevent the wheat or the good seed from growing in the way that it that it should grow in the roman world in fact it was a punishable crime for someone to do that, to take some bad seed, and, and as an act of revenge, go into someone's field and plant that seed. I mean, that was a crime. So it was something that actually happened, and with all of these parables, these are things that actually took place. And so th- there's a story. It's, it's a good story. Fortunately, for this parable, this is one that is explained to us later on, if you go down to Matthew chapter 13, and uh, beginning in verse... Uh, 36. Now, he tells this parable to the crowds, but then Jesus and his disciples, a smaller amount of people, get together in a home on the Sea of Galilee, probably in Capernaum, maybe Peter and Andrew's uh, house that kind of became a headquarters uh, for Jesus and his disciples. And so they go into this house, and it's interesting that this is the only parable that the disciples ask for an interpretation to. Now, Jesus does explain the parable of the sower and the seed, but He does that unsolicited. But according to the text, this one really caught their attention. They wanted to know, what's going on here? Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And so Jesus does that, beginning in verse 37. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out His kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. All right, so let's just take a moment and look at each one of these elements of the parable and see how Jesus identifies each one of these elements. First of all, the sower is Jesus, the son of man. And I think by extension, we, sh- we could think of anyone who is sowing the seed, who is sowing the gospel, who is teaching the message. The field, he says, is the world. Now, one way that this parable is sometimes interpreted, and I'm not going to interpret it this way, and I don't think it's the, the primary interpretation of this parable. Some people would interpret this, that the, the kingdom that he's talking about here is the church, and in the church we even have some, uh, some wheat and some weeds. We've got some good people, and we've got some bad people. Now, that may be true, but I don't think Jesus is referring to that right here because he identifies the field in a much broader sense as being the entire world. So, I don't think this is just limited to people in the, uh, in the church. So, the field is the world. The good seed, sons of the kingdom, believers, you and me. The weeds are sons of the evil one, people who don't believe, people who do evil things. And then there's this enemy, the devil. He's the one who's who's uh, mischievous. He's the one who's causing all of this problem. The harvest is going to be the end of the age, which is sometime in in the future, an undetermined time in the future, not yet, but someday the harvest is the end of the age. And then the harvesters are angels. They're going to be involved in separating the wheat from the, uh, the weeds. They're the ones who are going to uh, make that determination. And uh, the culmination of this parable is Jesus says, there will be a judgment. There is going to be a harvest. There is going to be a time in the future when good and evil will be distinguished. All right, so what's the meaning of this parable? In a nutshell, this is what I believe Jesus is saying. Even though the kingdom has come, and Jesus is clear about that in his teachings. I think John the Baptist is clear about that. I think that's a New Testament concept. Even though the kingdom has come, the kingdom of heaven is among us, it is still waiting for its full consummation when all evil will be vanquished. And until that day when the kingdom is fully consummated, the end of the age, until that day, believers will have to graciously live in a world where good and evil coexist with the confidence that one day, in the undetermined future, one day that faith will be rewarded and evil will be punished. And so look, let's look at some nuances of that teaching. Number one. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, is not going to be an overnight success. Not everyone is going to buy into this. This isn't going to overwhelm people. This isn't a kingdom where armies come in and everyone just bows down and says yes and becomes a part of that kingdom. It's not going to be like that. And I think, wouldn't you think that when Jesus starts talking about the kingdom of heaven is among us, wouldn't you think that? A lot of people thought when the kingdom came, there would be immediate and total results. Who could say no to this? And so the disciples and the apostles, the believers, probably had this expectation that things were going to happen quickly. But we see as we read through the New Testament, even as we read through church history, there were times of doubt because it didn't happen like that. And even John the Baptist as much faith as he had, had times of doubt. In Matthew chapter 11, there was this little little uh, story about John the Baptist. He has been arrested. <laughs> you would think if you're a kingdom person, it would keep you out of jail. You think if you're a kingdom person that everything would be going right for you? That everything would be happening as God wills? And so John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 11, he communicates with some people from jail. He says, is this really the kingdom? Is this really what we are to expect? Or is there someone else? And so the message comes back to Jesus. And Jesus says, yes, this is, I am the Messiah. Good things are happening. The blind are receiving their sight. Lame people are walking. People with leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. It hasn't come fully, but you can look around and you can see positive kingdom things happening. John the Baptist had doubts. There will be time. There have been times. There are times when i have my doubts has the kingdom really come and i would imagine you have those doubts at times also whether it's just observing what's happening in our world you're thinking this is the kingdom the kingdom is here on a more personal level sometimes we go through things in our life and we wonder whether or not jesus really is reigning so there are these doubts and maybe We have more doubts about the kingdom of heaven now than ever before as a people, where we see so many of our Christian values being rejected by our culture. But Jesus is saying the expectation is the kingdom is here, but it's not going to come totally until the consummation of the age. And so he wants the disciples not to be discouraged and to just keep doing good, to keep acting like kingdom people, even though there are many indications. That seem to demonstrate that the kingdom hasn't come. All right, another nuance to the, to the meaning of this parable is that there is an evil force opposing the kingdom. There's someone out there sowing all this mischief. It's interesting that when the believers uh, report back that there's some weeds in this field, the master doesn't blame them. He blames the enemy. There's an evil force. There's the devil who is still at work, I believe, in a limited way. But the devil is at work in our world, and he's the one who's causing all of this, all of this struggle. And Jesus is saying, even though you're in the kingdom now, until it is fully consummated, there's always going to be this battle. There's always going to be the evil one. He's always going to have people on his side that are sowing the weeds and making things difficult uh, for us. The devil's been defeated, but he's hanging on uh, for a while. And as much as we work, he still exists and is doing whatever he can to discourage and defeat believers. Sometimes I think our anger or our disappointment or our frustration that we feel as members of the kingdom... Yet living in the world where there's, there's weeds and there's evil, a lot of times that frustration we let out on other people rather than really blaming the root of this evil, the evil one, Satan. He's the one who's causing all of this problem. And we need to focus on him. He is the enemy, not, not, not necessarily each one of us. And so Jesus is saying, given this reality... Given there's this presence of evil, you really shouldn't be surprised when bad things happen. You really shouldn't be surprised when there's weeds in your life, when you see weeds in the world. And Jesus was really clear about that, wasn't he? He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. He said, it's going to be a struggle. He admitted that. His, his beloved apostle John mentions this several times in 1 John 3.13. He says, don't be surprised. It shouldn't come as a shock to you, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. It shouldn't be a surprise. All right, Christians, even though we believe that God is reigning because the full consummation of the kingdom hasn't taken place yet, we shouldn't be surprised when there's evil in this world, when people hate us. In John 15, 18 and 19, if the world hates you, keep in mind... It hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you. And well, that's not the case. The world hates you. John 17, in Jesus' prayer, he says to the Father, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. So Jesus says, don't be surprised. There'll be difficult times. There'll be people rooting against you. And there'll be evil in this world. I'm from Massachusetts. I always mention that wherever I go. And because of that, I'm a Boston Red Sox fan. Yeah. And I've been a Boston Red Sox fan even when they were really bad. I mean, I remember back when I was just a little kid, and the 86-year drought, and so 2004, it was just incredible when they won the World Series. So, but I'm a Red Sox fan, but I live in North Texas, which can cause some problems. This past summer, I sponsored a trip to a Ranger game. And I just put the date out there to see who wanted to go. But everyone who knew me had the strong suspicion that this wasn't really a Ranger game. This was a Red Sox game. And so I take a bunch of us from church to see the Red Sox or the Rangers. And I'm one of those guys, I wear the hat, I wear the shirt, you know, Red Sox stuff all over me. Got my two sons with me, all, all in their Red Sox garb. And, and i I'm just kind of just kind of proud, proud of that. But you know, when I go to a Red Sox game at Globe Life Stadium, I don't expect people to like me. I expect people to boo me. I expect to get those funny stares. I expect that because I'm in the presence of the enemy, the <laughs> Ranger fans. <laughs> Red Sox lost that game. Yeah, yay. Yeah. Are <laughs> no, you Ranger fans or Astro fans? Yeah? I did go to an Astro games too, just when the Red Sox were playing. But, but it, the Red Sox did hit a home run. And, um, you know, Globe Life Stadium, they, they, they shoot off fireworks. And so I turned to one of my friends. I said, well, where are the fireworks? <laughs> he says, they don't shoot off fireworks when the other team hits a home run. But I wasn't surprised by that because I was in enemy territory. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you are still in enemy territory. And so when you get the funny looks, you should expect it. When people don't welcome you in, you should expect it. When people celebrate when the enemy is winning instead of when you're winning, you should expect it. Jesus says there's evil in this world. And until he finally comes back at the end of the age, there's always going to be the presence of evil in our world. The third thing, good and evil will coexist. Evil will not be vanquished until the end. And the distinction of the weeds and the wheat I wish it were different, <laughs> but he says that's going to have to wait until the angels come back and this harvest takes place. But I want to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 13 and in verse 30, when Jesus first tells the parable. Of course, the, the believers, you know, they, they, they think they want to do what's right. And, and again, any gardeners out here, you know that if you have weeds in your garden, what's the natural thing to do? You pull up the weeds. And so that's their natural inclination. That's their suggestion. But the master says, "Mm -mm." he says in verse 30, let both grow together until the harvest. I kind of want to focus on that word let. As I was looking at that and studying it, that word let, of course, the New Testament was written in Greek. And this isn't the word for forgive, but this word let is related to the word forgive. For forgive, And so it's not just, hey, you've got to deal with it. Or, you know, just, 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 just be angry and, and uh, do all that you can to make all these evil people feel bad. Jesus uses this word which, which seems to imply that not only do we live in this evil world, but we do it graciously. We let it happen. And there may even be a tinge of forgiveness and mercy and grace as we interact with those weeds that we interact with. With, He goes on to say, we are not the weeders. We don't know enough to make those calls. And even our obsession with the removal of evil, sometimes that can even interfere and override our desire to do what is good. It can have the the opposite effect of what we expect. Personally, I can become so obsessed with correcting everyone that I fail to do the good things that I'm supposed to do. And I think churches sometimes can be so obsessed with telling the world everything that they're doing wrong that we forget that we're about the mission of extending grace and mercy and love to the people that are around us. Most people who work work with other people. Can you imagine going around eight, nine hours a day just focusing on what other people are doing wrong? You'd never get your job done. Now you're probably thinking, "Yeah, I know that person in my office. They were there. But yeah, those people, they, they never get the work done because they're so obsessed with correcting everyone else. There was an episode, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember this one? Uh, John comes to Jesus and he says, Teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. And Jesus says, Do not stop him. for Whoever does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. Whoever is not against us is for us. And he's trying to discourage this concept that we need to go around and point out everything that's going wrong. And that's what Judaism had become, hadn't it? That's the world that Jesus lived in. The religious leaders, what were they famous at doing? Pointing out. You're wrong here, you're wrong there, you're wrong there. And all the while, they were never demonstrating what they really believed in. They never really demonstrated a love for other people and a love for God. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 12 through 13, there's a church with some wheat and weeds, wasn't it? But Um, Paul makes this point about about how how do we react to sin. And and the reason why I I don't think this parable is referring to the church is because I think in the New Testament there's teaching about if you find a brother or sister caught in sin, then you need to confront that person, you need to try to restore that person. So that's why I think this parable is looking at the, the, the word kingdom is in a broader sense. But Paul makes a distinction about how we judge. And he says in uh, 5.12, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? And in verse 13, he kind of says the same thing that Jesus... God will judge those outside. He'll take take care uh, of that. Our primary task is to live out our Christian profession our primary task is not to condemn those who have not made that profession. They're weeds. That's what they do. All right, another nuance of the the meaning of this parable. Certain rescue is looming on the horizon. Certain rescue is looming on the horizon. And Jesus is saying in this parable, we need to live patiently in anticipation of the final judgment and the final reward. But even as we live in this world where there's good and evil, where they coexist and it can make us really angry and really bring doubts in our mind as to whether the kingdom has come, we have this expectation, we have this hope, we have this knowledge that one day reward is there for us. One day there will be a harvest. In the meantime, we live with patient hope. I think Romans chapter 8, 18 through 25 is a great commentary on what Jesus is saying here. Romans chapter 8, such a great chapter. But listen to these words. As Paul writes to a group of people who are living in a world that seems to be getting worse and worse and worse, and it seems to be even more dangerous and more dangerous to be a Christian in this world full of weeds. So he says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He always has this forward expectation. Paul knows that something good is going to happen, and that's what keeps him going. And he says the same thing to these Christians in Rome. Something good is going to happen. He says, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated someday from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning. That's what it's like to live in a world where evil and good coexist. We groan. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even Christians are groaning. They groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is not seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait patiently. And Jesus is saying, my kingdom, you're going to have to wait for the final results. Driving down here on Interstate 35 today, which is always a joy. I was down here earlier uh, in the summer, we went to Schlitterbahn, and I, and I saw this, this billboard, and I saw someone else comment on this billboard. Uh, I didn't see it driving down, uh, driving down today, but it, it says, one day you're going to love I-35. Have you seen that billboard? <laughs> one day you're going to love I-35. Until then, be careful. I don't know if I'll ever love I-35. but I think the message is, is someday this is going to be done. You know, someday this highway is going to be nice and smooth and there's not going to be any construction and you'll just be able to buzz up and down Texas with no problem at all. But until then, just be careful. And I think Jesus is kind of saying that right here in this parable too. One day, you're going to shine. Until then, be careful. Until then, just keep living the life that God has called you to live. One more story about my high school days. I was short, but I played football. I don't know why I played football, because I was... I was uh, when you're short and everyone else is short, it's not too bad. But I kind of stayed the same height. Everyone else was getting larger and bigger and faster and stronger, but wanted to play football, so, so I played football my senior year. Our last game of the season was always on Thanksgiving Day. It was Thanksgiving Day, I think it was at 10 a.m. Big tradition in Massachusetts. I don't know if they still have those Thanksgiving games. And I know football is bigger in Texas. But even in Massachusetts, football was a pretty big thing. And for me, my dream was to someday hear my name called out over the intercom that I did something. But I didn't have many chances to do anything. But this is my very last football game. Thanksgiving Day, that's when we have our biggest crowd. Our team stunk. We weren't going to the playoffs. And so this was the last time I was going to put the pads on. Last time I was going to wear the helmet. And I was on the kickoff team, special teams. So the beginning of the second half, I'm right there to the right of the kicker. And even though I was short, I was a little sleeker back then, I was pretty fast. If I could get down the field pretty quickly, their star running back was set to receive the kickoff. And so I'm chugging down, chugging down the field, and I got him in my sights. And it's just me and him, this big, he must all weigh me by 50 pounds. But man, I mean, I just—I was a perfect tackle. I just wrapped my arms around, him, drove him into the ground. Uh, I think they're still using that film for, uh, <laughs> for clinics or something about football. But man, it was just great. It was just awesome. But you know what I was most excited about? They were going to announce it an, on the tackle, Todd Kouto. I wore number 15. I was like eighth string quarterback. <laughs> I was number 15. Our starting linebacker wore number 13, Jay Gouzet. His name was always being called. And so I'm running off the field, and I'm thinking, here it goes. I'm just waiting. And they say, on the tackle, Jay Gouzet. <laughs> it was my one time to shine. And they don't even get the number right. But as I was running over to the sideline, There was this one coach, Coach coaches I had had for several years. He coached me in baseball, coached me in football. His name was Coach Blood. (laughs) What a great name for a football coach, you know? (laughs) know? I'm telling the truth, Coach Blood. And so my my helmet was messed up, my my chin strap was messed up, and I'm going over there and I'm disappointed. And then Coach Blood, he hits me on the side of the head, grabs me by the face mask, and he says, Good tackle, Catoe. And that's all I needed, was to get that word of commendation from the coach. In this world, there will be trouble. In this world, there's going to be evil. In this world, you're not going to get the recognition that you think you deserve. In this world, the kingdom is not going to get the recognition that you deserve. But one day, if you stay faithful, you'll run over to the sideline, and God will call your name, and you will shine. One day, even though you may be the shortest, most overlooked person in the world, one day you'll be at the front of the line and hear your name called by your Father in heaven. So Jesus says, just keep doing right. Don't be discouraged. Brother and sister, don't be discouraged by all the evil that's going on here. That's the way it is until the angels come back and this harvest is taken care of. So keep doing what is. Don't be, is. Don't be so obsessed with all the evil. Don't be surprised at all the evil. Recognize that there's an evil one in this world. He says that's what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so you just continue to be your little old mustard seed and your little yeast and do what you can to bring this kingdom into the lives of other people. And one day you will shine. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the teachings of Jesus, for his, his, his insight. He's, he's divine. But Father, we are sometimes so discouraged by the evil that we see in our world, by the bad things that happen in our life. And, Father, help us to realize that even though the kingdom has come here on this earth, that Jesus Christ now reigns at your right hand, that in the meantime, until he comes back, there's going to be this tension that we live in between good and evil. And, Father, we pray that each one of us here will remain faithful, that we will be focused on the task at hand, and that we will live in this eager and hopeful anticipation of one day you coming back and each one of us receiving the reward that you have promised to us. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.